beaming straight into your homes, all the way from Highbury and Islington. Short films, big questions. That is definitely making it into the <laughs> So you have to, that has to happen. Um, yeah, we've got a new studio, um, which yeah, is my living room. Big up Matt yeah. Buckley, um, who gave us all of this sound gear. Anyway, uh, on to business. Um, so this episode, we have a new guest um, mm. called Alexandre Do, who is an amazing filmmaker who I know from a commercials uh, directing course that I just did. <coughs> <before>. NFTS. <laughs> the NFTS. And, um, which I've never mentioned before. Um and yeah, it was amazing to actually get to because I've known him for a year now, and um, you know, there's, there's so much stuff in this podcast that came up that I had no idea about um, from him. And he was just incredibly, uh, I thought, really, really honest about the whole process. And we were just saying uh, uh, after the podcast that you know he talks about his failures as well and all of the ups and downs that go along with the process and how persistent he's had to be. Um, and so we just which really is, appreciate you know, that, which isn't always that common. Um, yeah, you know, amongst yeah. filmmakers, so really refreshing to hear someone you know talk talk about it in that way yeah um yeah amazing short films that we'll link in our little episode description um but yeah otherwise worth known as the show notes otherwise known as the show notes um yeah worth a watch uh particularly his last film anakam uh which did really well on um it got screen shown on nowness as well as boom tv yeah boom and then and um, shots net yeah, shots now is a big one as well. So yeah. all online stuff actually, which he goes into yeah, the like, why he chose to do that as well. Yeah, not not uh, film festivals per se. Yeah. And that that one is uh, a Cambodian film. Again, he's going to go uh, into that in the episode as well. Yeah, but really great short films. And we'll, yeah, a monster just as Anakam. well. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll just we'll link we'll link some of them like we say. Um, but yeah, this was a really really great episode. Um, great to have such a frank discussion. Yeah, awesome. Well, I hope you guys enjoy. Yeah, let's crack on. Roll that intro. <laughs> so, first questions first, Alex. Um, why did you want to become a filmmaker? Why did you want to start making short films? Um, I mean, it's going to be a long answer. You know? It's a big question. It's a big question to start with. Yeah. Also, it's it is it's you know short films, but these podcasts last. Yeah, hours, so. they are big questions. We're big questions by nature here at Short Films. Big questions. Okay. I mean, uh, there was no like predetermined like path or like there was no like big idea like that I had when I was young where I was like, oh yeah, I want to be a feature filmmaker. No, like when I was younger, I was just drawing loads of comic books because I had that thing a compulsion to tell stories. Uh, and you know, when you're like six, seven year old, like what you write about is usually spaceships and dragons and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but then I think it evolved. Like my parents really wanted me to like pursue like a, a viable career. Uh, so I did graphic design, uh, but I was really not happy doing it. So at the same time I was doing loads of photography, animation and stuff, which kind of failed, you know, that, uh, that need. But at some point when I was like 19, 20, I just realized that I just needed to like commit for a bit and see if it works. So then I moved to London to go to Central St. Martin uh, and did a course in animation and filmmaking. But it's really graphic design with an option. Central uh, St. Martin is uh, film school or? It's, it's a big art school. Okay. And they're really, really famous for fashion design and fine arts. Uh, 
and and like and I also really wanted to move out of France because I'm from Paris. Um, so like I needed a reason to just move away from my parents' place and be alone for a bit away from them. Um, so yeah, I did that. Uh, and like, at first I, re I really thought I wanted to be an animator because I really like the craft of it and like, I really like to use my hands and stuff. But I, I think I've made a few animations that were like two, three minutes and they took me months. And, and then I, re I realized that, okay, I'm not actually that patient. Uh, so I started experimenting with actors and I mean, at first with friends. And then I realized that live action was really fun. So I, I kept, you know, trying to experiment more and do more stuff. And for my graduation short at CSM, I did a short film in Yorkshire. Uh, it was like super low budget. It was like 2000 pounds or something. And everyone was my friends. And then I, and I also casted people on Mandy and you know, what was the other one? Was that uh, Minotaur, that, that one? It's Minotaur. I cast then, people. Sorry to interrupt, but so you were studying fine art and then your uh, final piece was, was a short film? I was actually studying graphic design with an option in moving image. I see, okay, um, all right. And my course leader was a French director, actually, that ah. went to the NFTS. Um, and he kind, of, he kind of like pushed me towards like that direction. Um, and for some reason, everyone hated him. Everyone uh, hated him. Yeah, because he was really French, so he was very direct and very mm. no bullshit. Kind of like, you know, Sheridan. Okay, yeah. uh, and I kind of like that. I like, I like to be pushed, maybe because, you know, my parents are like very tough too. So, you know, like I was like, oh, I like that. You know, I like mm. just, you know, being like able to do better. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, I think after graduating, I didn't know if I would still want to direct. So I, I started being a DOP a bit for friends. I started editing for people too. Um, but then I think it, it took a couple of years for me to realize, okay, I'm actually not that happy doing stuff for other people. So then I directed again, I did a monster. Uh, and when I did that one, I feel like I really stepped up because I, I hired a proper crew, a proper DP. I had a pretty sizable budget. It was like uh, 15,000. That's, wow. I, sa I saved that for two, basically for two years when I worked at Reuters. Um, that was your own, own money? Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's just basically two years of not, you know, doing much. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, at the end of it, like, I, had, I think I had 12,000. And then with like tax and stuff, like I was able to stretch it to 15, basically. Uh, and yeah, that, that, that was pretty good. You know what, actually, I applied for a grant with Film London. And at first, they sent me an email saying that I got the grant for a, a monster, a grant of £4,000, you know. And like the day after, they told me, actually, you know, like it's, it was a mistake. It was for a film called The Monster. <laughs> what? So, oh my gosh. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was fine. You still made it. So. Yeah, I still made it. And like the film was pretty good. It was an adaptation of a French graphic novel. And I approached the, the original comic book artist to like have the rights and stuff. And I just basically remember having just a Guinness with him in Paris. And he was like, yep, you got the rights. And I'm like, and was he, sorry, this is kind of maybe a brief tangent, but was he quite an established comic book writer? He was up and coming. Up like, and coming. Right. Like I've read his, that graphic novel, uh, The Monster like in 2016 or something and i really liked it i was like oh that would be a very good short film 
And uh, I think it took me two, three years to like write the script, but also have the confidence to be like, okay, I can make it. Because hmm. I didn't feel like I could at that time. Because um, it's a tough subject matter. We'll go into it later because I don't want to interrupt you, but you know, we yeah. both watched it. It's really, really great. But yeah, oh, so you're tackling some serious film. themes there. <laughs> it, it, yeah. was, it was very tough because like, I, I researched a lot about, you know, people that get acid attacks and like people that like burn victim and like their trauma and stuff like that. And I was really like struggling with like, oh, should I cast an actual burn victim or should I just cast an actor and then, you know, go through makeup every day? I decided to cast an actor and apply makeup to him and stuff, uh, which I think was right. So I think when I finished A Monster, I dedicated like a whole year while also working as a freelancer to submit it to festivals and everything. And I think I, I submitted to like 40 festivals and I didn't get to any of them because I think I was aiming way too high. Like, Wait, was that with A Monster? Yeah. Really? Because it was like a genre film and I think uh, it was a very heavy subject and there was no clear like resolution to the end. It was very, it was pretty much a mood. Uh, and I think at that time it was not, you know, like right, I guess, even though now everyone loves genre films. Um, but yeah, so, so after that I was like, I took, a, I took a break. I was just editing and trying to find inspiration again, and just traveling and like doing other things. Did that? Did you take that pretty hard then? When like, um, once didn't get in to the festivals you wanted it to. Yeah, I mean, I was still pretty happy of the achievement of like having made the film and like people saying that it was a very good calling card and stuff for like your next short or like something like that. Um, but but yeah, like I remember my girlfriend saying that you know there's like it's pretty good, good job, but there's like something missing like that extra 10 percent and i was like oh fuck yeah she's right like i didn't put 100 percent into this film because i think i got fatigued at the end and i was not experienced enough to like deal with that at that time um what, what do you think what do you mean by that extra 10 percent um i think uh when i made a monster like i i think i, I worked on it for like two three years so by the end of the third year, like in the edit especially, like I didn't have like that much clarity with the story anymore. I just wanted it to be done, basically. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of, you know, a disservice to the story. Yeah. Um, but also the way we shot it was kind of the way I shoot music videos, which is just, I shoot the exact shot I need. And maybe with a bit of handles left and right. But I, I didn't shoot coverage back then. Like I just shot the shots, which is very, very risky. Um, but that, that was because I read so many books uh, on filmmaking, especially Stephen D. Katz and McKendrick and stuff. Um, yeah, because Stephen D. Katz, like I, I read his book when I was like 17 or something. And that was very influential in like making me understand how to make a film. But one of his main arguments was like, oh yeah, you don't shoot coverage. You just, if you're like a filmmaker with balls, you just shoot your shots and that's it because you have to be committed to visual language. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, he's right. And, and when it was time to edit, we were like, oh shit, that doesn't work. <laughs> so yeah. And you had nothing to cover yourself and, with. And I had nothing to cover. So then you had the mercy of like what you have, which is the worst thing because then you're just rewriting because you have to. Uh, so yeah. Can I just jump in there for a sec? Um, 
I remember also like in that in a brief talk we had before you mentioned that you like you realized like what a long game filmmaking was oh yeah and that was kind of like the impulse for you to go traveling and to take a break mm. so presumably that's that that moment you had there i wonder like can you expand a bit on like what you meant by that like in terms of how you view filmmaking as a long game oh yeah um i mean i'm a very impatient person so you know, when you watch those YouTube videos of like directors saying that, you know, this is not a sprint, it's a marathon, you're like, shut the fuck up. I, I will, I'm going to, I'm going to be the best, the best filmmaker and like, I'll make a feature by the time I'm, I'm 40 or something. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not like that. Like it takes so long and takes so many moving parts um, that, yeah, you have to realize that it takes years and years and years to develop like even a taste or even like a visual language as a director. Um, and you have to travel, you have to read, you have to meet people, you have to basically nourish your brain so that you have something to say. Because if you make film after film after films, you just, you know, a filmmaker's filmmaker, hmm. but you have nothing to say really. Yeah. Um, I went to like a Denis Villeneuve talk at the BFI a couple months ago. And uh, I think he was saying something similar. He was like, oh, yeah, I made two feature films, uh, Maelstrom and the other one. And then he took a nine-year break. Wow. What, what did he say he did in those nine years? He said that during those nine years, he was reading, traveling. He was teaching. Mm. Teaching film? He was teaching film at, like, at some university. And he was, kind of, he was trying to find, basically... Uh, what he wanted to say as a filmmaker and I thought oh this is very very like it speaks to me right now uh, because yeah I don't think there's any point just like making film for the sake for the sake of it you know yeah like, uh, yeah I feel like the the almost in the day in in the day and age that we're in it's, it's, it's it feels like we have to rush mm. to make the next short and do this and get into this festival and then make this next short and then do that but you're so right like if you don't take the time to it's like more about understanding who you are and what the kind of thing you are, it, you, what is it that you want to make as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I think, yeah, you shouldn't treat film as like content where you just output something and you don't really give a shit about what people think of it. You're just glad that, you know, it's there. Like, you know, you have to treat it as art. Like, it's like, what do you want to say? And, you know, and like, does it, you know, resonate with people? That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, I had actually, uh, I was listening to another podcast the other day. I'm not gonna name it because you know, I don't. You wanna... can name it. You can name it. It was it was like, I think it was like the BFI shorthand or something, and uh, or maybe it was another one. It was about skin writing, and we were talking about how you should never, you should never like, uh, try to be a perfectionist with film. And just write and rewrite and rewrite until you think something is perfect, because the a script or a film or a piece of art is really just like uh, a testimony of who you are at that time, and you change every day basically. So you will never be satisfied with what you make unless you impose yourself external deadlines, basically. And I found that also very very true. So is that sort of a bit 
contrary to what you were saying, your previous point about like, yeah. Um, so it's a balancing act, I suppose. Like you want to, it, it is a balancing act yeah, because I, I think you should treat it, you know, with intent, you should take it, take it very seriously, like making films and stuff. But you should also keep in mind that um, what you make is never going to be perfect. It's just going to be, you know, that that time capsule, basically. So um, if you look back at uh, the monster, for, uh, our monster, sorry, mm-hmm. as we were talking about earlier, is that does that do you think that encapsulates who you were? Yeah. Then when you were making it. Yeah, because when I made the monster, I was very, very single. <laughs> and and I definitely had some like some kind of like frustration or something with Tinder dates, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, for some reason, there's something that compelled me uh, with with Antoine, with Anthony, I think in in the in the monster. Like, there's something I liked about the character, and there's something that you know I felt like I identified with him, which is why I wanted to make it. But today, I don't identify with that character anymore. To me, this is like, oh, this is just something I did like a few years ago. Mm. Uh, so, so yeah. I think I um sorry. No, no, go for uh, it. With yeah, a short I made a while ago is definitely something. I made it when I was twenty four. It's definitely something that I was you know going through maybe as a twenty four. And I don't know about you for newbie, for example. You were what 25, 24, 25? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that do you think mm. for you as well? It's, it's similar. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess you just look at it with different eyes, don't you, as the years progress? Like, you know, you yeah. see it one way back then, now you mm. see it in a different way. Yeah. Uh, those kind of things. Because at that didn't even have talk, the, the interviewer was really trying to insist and ask questions about those two early films. Mm. And Donny didn't want to answer any questions. He was really? like, oh, these were like, you know, my teenager kind of films. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want to, you know, yeah. see them. Uh, because, yeah, there, it, there was like a nine year gap in between. Like those two films in Polytechnique, you know. It's amazing. Really. So, so yeah. But yeah, I think we should go back. I think we should conclude. And, you know, we asked you oh, a question. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, you know, you say so many, lots of, you said so many interesting mm. things that we jumped around, but I want to, I want to get to the end. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. The yeah. question. So you, you've made a monster and then you've kind of realized that filmmaking is a long game and you want oh, yeah. and you, you go traveling and, and then what happens? So I go traveling a lot. I go backpacking a lot, especially in Southeast Asia, because my parents have a, a home in Cambodia. Um, and I think the more I travel in Southeast Asia, the more like I realize what's happening there, like what's like the socioeconomical like environment, what's happening, especially with China. And I realize that in Cambodia, there's definitely a lot of stories to tell. Um, and uh, I think when I came back to London. I was thinking about making a film in Cambodia because uh, I felt like I could tell something authentic without exoticizing it. Uh, because I was watching Only God Forgive and I found, I found it, you know, pretty, but I found it so empty as a film. Totally agree. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> Nicholas, Nicholas winding ref- yeah. yeah 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 like it's a really pretty film but I, I mean to me it doesn't mean anything that film mm. um, and I didn't want to fall into that basically I wanted to make a film that means something so I, I researched a lot I watched basically loads of films of Cambodian filmmakers and also British filmmakers there's one it's called a Cambodian Spring by Chris Kelly um, and uh, it's like a it's like a documentary about 
people protesting. Uh, it's like about people protesting uh, against like the construction of a massive like uh, real estate complex on top of a village mm. uh, called the Diamond Islands, uh, and I found that like. Like, so amazing. I even sent him an email. What was it called again? Cambodian Spring by Chris Kelly. Cambodian Spring. And I sent him an email, actually, uh, with a link to Anikam, saying that he really was a big inspiration in that film, and he, like, sent me a really nice email saying, that, oh, my God, thank you so much and stuff. Like, it was really nice. And so so you're travelling around South America, uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. and you're watching all these Cambodian films. Is that then... Did you wait a while to start writing? Were you writing as you were getting gaining these experiences and watching these these films? I, I was like actively researching for like six months, uh, watching films, but also reading loads of like um, papers on like the situation there, on but also even like like real estate reports and stuff like that, just to have a, a big picture. Also, loads of documentaries about. <clears throat> There was something that I found really interesting, which is uh, inherited debt in Cambodia, where you have construction workers that basically live in the construction sites uh, that they are working in. And uh, like it's a bit sad because their children inherit the debt that they have, so they have to, they have to work in the construction site, regardless of you know, their desire of what they want to do in life or something. And I found that so sad. So I, that was like one of the driving, you know, uh, forces of like Anikam really. Like I felt like there was such like so much despair and like so much sadness in Cambodia. Because, uh, you know, the country went through a genocide in the 70s, which is why my parents fled to France. Um, and um, there's like lo- lots of exploitation like from China right now, like in that country. And I felt like... Wow, Cambodia can really not get a break. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it needed, I needed to make that film. Uh, and also, I didn't feel that I, like, like I was forced to make it. I really wanted to make that film. And I think this is like the right... Uh, this is when it feels right, you know, to make a film. When like you don't even think about the time you're spending researching and working on it. It's just, it's natural. Mm, so yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. And um, that, because obviously that you directed with uh, your friend Ming, mm-hmm. how did that come about? Was was he part of your travels or did he, like what kind of stage did he uh, so, so at first I just sent him the script for, uh, for punch-ups and for uh, generally just helping me a bit with like the structure of the scenes and stuff because he had slightly more experience with writing. He already wrote like uh, one feature script at that point. So I was like kind of getting, you know, like an external point of view from him. And I think at some point I realized that, oh, maybe this is way bigger than I thought, like this this film. So I, I might need someone to also be there with me to co-direct. Um, because at that point I just made a monster, which in scale is way smaller than Anikam. Like Anikam is so much bigger. Um, and I knew that Ming... Uh, worked a lot on commercials like uh, as an AD and stuff so I, I thought he was going to be very useful uh, and also we really really connected with the tone and what we wanted to say with Anikam uh, because we were watching loads of films loads of films together by the Thai director Api Chapong you know 
who made Uncle Bon Me and uh, the one with Tilda Swindon, Memoria. Okay, yeah. And we were watching his films and we were like, oh my God, that tone is perfect for Annie Tam. Um, and this is how basically he, he jumped in. He also, he also was so committed that he sold all of his stocks like that he had like uh, for like a, a wheat startup or something so that we can we could really bump the budget um and so yeah that's how yeah. it happened no you go for it i was just gonna ask about so he sold his stocks and uh was that how mainly how you funded the film or did you have to put again I, you put your own savings and things in like i put my own savings and i also begged my brother and family to like give me something uh and that, that's how it happened basically uh, mm-hmm. He also had to beg his family. That, That's what we do with short films. <laughs> Everyone begs their family and puts their own money in. Yeah, I mean, with a monster, I, you know, I managed to do it all on my own, and I was very happy about that. But with Anikam, actually, at first, I just wanted to make it, like you know, on ten grand or something. And my producer Visa was like, "This is never gonna happen," and he was like, "This is more like a forty k budget," mm-hmm. and. Um. But we managed to reduce it to, uh, for at least the production budget, we reduced it to something like 25 or 20 or something. So that, w- that was pretty good. Was uh, that so was a major factor in like the budget being... For context for the listeners, this, this shoot is all entirely by night, right? It's all yep. in nighttime. Is that the, one of the major factors for the reason why the budget was so high? The reason why the budget was so high is because the, the team was massive. Uh, a lot of production design, a lot, a lot of runners, uh, a lot of camera people, grip, gaffers, because we shot basically in the middle of the countryside in the jungle. So you cannot just plug into you yeah. know a main somewhere. You you have to bring a generator truck, right? And you have to create your own light like in the middle of the jungle and stuff. So that was the main thing. Uh, and um, we also wanted to pay everyone fairly we didn't want to pay people you know uh, like nothing and just say like oh you know it's an indie film so it should be fine no, no, no. we want to pay people fairly because especially in cambodia like um we felt like we needed to give something because we're taking basically that you know so much raw material from the country to make like an interesting looking story but you know it, it almost feels like stealing if like you shoot a cheap short in Cambodia and you don't pay anyone <laughs> and you come yeah, back and you yeah. send to festivals, you know? Mm. So I was going to say, it must've been like tricky, like the casting process as well. Oh yeah. Um, did you yeah. guys fly out and audition actors? Um, so everything was done remotely at first. So they sent us loads of tapes. Casting director. Did you have a casting director? No, nah. we just, uh. we just had our producer on site and exec- executive producer. Um, who's a really established producer in Cambodia. Um, and uh, he they just casted people for a couple of days and sent us all these tapes on Google Drive. And, and from that, me and Ming were deciding who we're going to see again in person. And, but I, can't, I already knew who I wanted for the main character because Van Darit, who plays the main character, Narit, he was just a thousand times better than everyone else. Like, he, he's a real actor, basically. Like, I could feel so much looking at just his tapes, whereas everyone else, like, I could tell that there was someone's friend or cousin or, you know, some, some, <laughs> random, kid they, some random kid they just grabbed on the street or something. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And, and um, 
So you just based it on the tapes then? So you cast from just the tapes, you didn't we, we, meet them? We did a short list based on the tapes. And, and then we flew to Cambodia a month, like a month before like the planned shooting days, just to do all the callbacks, rehearsals, uh, and also location scouting and just like everything else, like crew equipment and stuff. We had to bring the Alexa from Vietnam uh, because there was no Alexa in Cambodia at that time. Yeah, a month to do, and you didn't know what locations you were going to have in prior to that month. Well, we really wanted to shoot uh, in Sihanoukville, which is what is, is like the inspiration for uh, for the script. Uh, but it was nearly impossible to shoot there because you just like put a camera anywhere in Sihanoukville, and you're going to have a guard or a policeman just come to you because there's so much dodgy stuff happening over there. Uh, but we were driving all around Cambodia, basically trying to find our spots. Uh, and we found some amazing spots, but they were just too far away or like not logistically doable. So we had to settle for a, like a village that was maybe an hour away from the capital city. So we could basically drive in and out every day mm. rather than pay for accommodation for everyone because it was a massive crew. Mm. So there's that. Uh, okay, so they were all local then, the crew that, that yeah. you had? Okay. Like all the crew were local to the, ca the capital city, so it was pretty easy. We just had a massive school bus where everyone was like, you know, going in. And we'd just like go back to Phnom Penh every, every morning at 7 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like that month that you had was like crunch time. Like, you know, like oh, yeah. quite a lot to to do without it being sorted, you know, previous to that month. Like, um, Oh, yeah. But I think that's how that's how it is, and that's how you have to do with shorts. Like people, you know, have commitments. People like you know shoot commercials and other things. Uh, so as soon as you put a shooting, like you're shooting dates, you just have to go, and you just have to deal like with whatever time you have left, basically. Hmm. Did you have uh, any kind of rehearsal time with the actors or anything like that? And with the DP, did you have enough time to prep? With with her and we we had we had a couple of days rehearsal with the actors, which was pretty great because we also had an acting coach, um, who's now a short film director, and mm -hmm. she and she's like going to all these festivals right now. Like this is it's really cool. Um, th that was very useful too because we don't speak Cambodian, me and Ming, uh, so we were directing in English, and working with the 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 acting coach on like you know, the directing style, you know, that they needed. Because, I mean, obviously, some of the actors do not know the method or, you know, um, or even, like, simple, like, you know, verb direction and stuff. Sometimes you just have to be very simplistic and do all the wrong things, basically. You, like, sometimes you have to line, to just line read. Sometimes you even act it out in front of them, which is terrible. But when when you have to get it done, that's it. You have to do it. Um, because the guy playing Sam, the truck driver, he he has a background in soap. Okay. Oh right. So, background in soap. So, soap drums. So soap oh, okay, opera. Yeah. yeah. So he was very very. Uh, he was giving two hundred percent on every shots, but not in a good way. <laughs> like he was. How's he doing? He it? was flaying his arms and stuff. He was being over dramatic, basically. Mm. And it was like, it was a lot of work to make him, you know, tone it down a lot. Mm -hmm. Because 
yeah, he had to understand that we're not going for soap, we're going for, you know, something very muted and very realistic. So, yeah. Cool. I, um, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so, okay, so shoot Anacam and mm-hmm. then edit it. And then like, what, how does that, how does the, the, the process afterwards differ from a monster? Uh, you mean the post, or you mean? Um, I mean, I mean actually, like you know, so your experience submitting it to festivals oh, yeah. and online. Well, you know, when when we both came back to our countries, me and Ming. Um, well, first Ming went to Vietnam, and uh, we were watching like the the tapes together, like online, um, and we realized that we were missing coverage, and and we were missing some like a few shots here and there that we didn't pull out. Um, so Ming proposed to do a one-day reshoot. Um, just just him and uh, Mio, who was the first AD. And she she really, really was impressed by Laura, the DP, so much that she wanted to be a DP. So we were like, okay, cool. You're going to be the DP on the reshoots. Uh-huh. Um, was there a reason not to have... Because reason- Laura was, was already gone. Okay. She was already back. Um, and uh, yeah, Mio and all the other female crew members they were like so impressed by Laura because they say that there's like no female DPs in Cambodia, and so they were like very looking you know, looking up to her. Mm. Um, and yeah, they shot they shot it like you know one one extra night, and then when we had that extra day, we looked at the footage me and Ming together, and because we're both working editors, we were editing like one version, passing it to the other. And basically doing a back and forth for like a couple of months, mm. um, which was really good because he will edit something and export it, and then by the time he goes to bed, I will wake up, edit it, export it, and it will just wow. be like basically nonstop editing for months. Uh, well, um, can I? Uh, in terms of so like so, Ming would edit edit a scene. Mm-hmm. And then you would what? You'd recut that scene in a certain way. Did that? Did that ever? Did you ever kind of clash over how? Cause yeah. I imagine yeah, yeah. that's like a obviously you're both so close to that project by that mm. point. Like you both put your own money and you both written it. You both mm-hmm. directed it and been through all that stuff together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did that? Um, how did that work for the two of you? There's definitely times where uh, we clashed a bit with some scenes because we had different opinions about you know the tone and. Um, I think this is when when we realized that even though we had the same taste and we tried to like iron it out by watching the same films and like try to establish that tone together, uh, we had different sensibilities. Um, he was definitely more looking at a film that was more contemplative and slower, whereas I was trying to infuse more genre elements and make it more like a like a no country for old men basically. Like something that is thrilling, but at the same time not, you know, tr- tr- transporter, you know. Yeah. Um, Nocturnal animals is that I remember watching oh. the first time and telling you that's what reminded me. Oh yeah, me. like I remember yeah, watch. Yeah. I remember watching Nocturn- Nocturnal Animals and that scene, you know, the the night scene with the two cars. Yeah. And I was like, oh my god, this is amazing. And, <laughs> and, and this was like, I think, yeah, it was definitely a big influence for that for the the bribing scene in Anikam. Um, I'm just going to caveat all of this by saying we will link Anakam oh, yeah. in good, the show notes so, so <laughs> yeah. people can um, get a better understanding of what yeah. we're talking about as well. Yeah. 
And then, and then, yeah, we were happy with the edits. We did all the music, all the grade, the sound mixing, the VFX uh, between Canada, France, and UK. Um, we had an amazing VFX team called Starno uh, in Montreal that was like up for doing it at a really, really lower cost. Uh, because there's like 30 plus VFX shots in Anicam. I wouldn't have thought that, like, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Like, there's a lot of cleanups, because sometimes you just have a random stick somewhere, a random extra, or no, an extra, you know, a random technician somewhere that you just want to get rid of. Mm -hmm. um, but also, we had some continuity problems uh, with some shots. Like, there's actually scenes where uh, um, Narit, the main actor, is not wearing the wrong, the, the right thing. Oh, really? And oh. so we had uh, the VFX team basically recreate his body and paste it on top nice. so that it will, you know, uh, it will make sense, basically. <laughs> Some stuff like that. And also, you know, like the, the beginning scene where he's running away from that construction site. Mm. This, is, this is also VFX, like, because all the construction, the cranes and stuff, they were not there. Mm. Like, this was actually empty. Uh, added in afterwards. Yeah, we added yeah. in afterwards. Um, so we had that... And the music was a massive part of it too. Like we, we collaborated with uh, Thomas Nicole, a French composer. And uh, <laughs> we sent him so many references. And at first I was like, is that wrong to do that? Is it like, you know, line reading to an actor, like to give yeah. a composer tracks? Because we sent him The Beast by Johan Johansson. You know, the most famous track in Sicario. Oh, yeah. Sicario's got mega Yeah, well. because we wanted something that was really textural and not that melodic, you know. Mm. And uh, the, the first few tracks he sent us were like too much like that. And so it, it took like seven or eight iterations for it to be its own thing. And the, when we had it, we were like super, super, super happy. Mm. Um, and, uh, and when it was like done... Uh, COVID happened. <laughs> really? <laughs> Wait, when it was finished, finished, everything finished. When, yeah. when we were like ready to submit it, it was, you know, early 2020 or something. Um, and we've, we'd see loads of festival be, festivals being cancelled, yeah. you know, like Sundance and stuff like that. Not that we would get there, but we were like thinking, right, there's no point investing a thousand or two thousand pounds like on festival submissions when we know that most of them are going to be online anyway let's just send our short to online outlets instead i think i read an article on short of the week that was weighing the pros and cons of uh, online uh, festivals well festivals I know versus exactly online. that article. Jan has yeah. sent me this exact <laughs> article you know and, and yeah. they, they i think it was for an animation short called the cypher or something like that right could and you um, just, as context, explain what that article says? Uh, if I can remember right, uh, that article basically says that um, you should just send your film to online outlets rather than festivals because the amount of... You don't get a good return on investment, basically. Um, you get way more viewership online than in festivals. Even though the, the viewership on, of, fe of festivals is curated, it was not going to apply to us because it was COVID anyway. So it would not make sense to just spend so much money on something that people would just see online for free. So, mm. so yeah. And, and I just called, emailed lots of places like Shots, uh, Nowness, and uh, 
Little Black Book Online, but also Boom. Free, Free the Work was uh, on there as well? Oh, Free the Work was not there yet. Oh, okay. But also Boom and Director Library and all these, you know, all these outlets and stuff. And I think we wanted to have a premiere at a website that we deemed, you know, like that will respect the film. And I think when Nowness said everyone won a premiere, we were so, so happy because Nowness was to us the right place. That it's the, it's the place, you know, that, may, that outputs like RT films at the same time. The interview bit, you know, gives you a lot of context, which mm -hmm. I think is what we needed because I do think that Anikam is a bit obtuse. Like we don't give a lot. Um, and the interview bit that we did for Nowness gave a lot of context about what's happening in Cambodia and stuff like that. Uh, so I think that was useful. You know, we wanted like a, rep a reputable outlet because we still wanted that kind of that kind of seal of, of approval, mm. basically. Um, and it did help us a lot because I think you know subconsciously people are like, "Oh, your film is on Nowness. I'm gonna check it out." Yeah. You know, rather than mm -hmm. you just saying a email link to an agent and yeah, they're just yeah. not never gonna watch it. You know. Yeah, totally. And and so so it premiered on Nowness, mm -hmm. and then did you find that uh, the when you submitted it to other uh, these other sites that because it was on Nowness it became maybe more um, um, something they wanted to actually show. I, actually, I just emailed all these all these people uh, out of the blue and at the same time, and they all kind of agreed to like output it and do an interview around the same time. So. Like, it didn't premiere on Nowness yet, uh, but we already had, like, four solid outlets that confirmed it at the same time, basically, without knowing about the others. Okay. okay. Yeah. And then, so so they're all going to release, like, more or less at the same moment, and they didn't know? Yeah, within a span of, like, two, three months, basically. Okay. Uh, we had to sign agreements, you know, saying that, okay, you're not going to be the premiere. There's another outlet that's going to be the premiere, actually, mm -hmm. but we're not going to tell you, you know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right, cool. What um what did you find that you got from that when they when it was all released, like on these four 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 or five outlets you've just said, what um what kind of reaction was there? Did you get any kind of interest from other filmmakers or production companies, things like that? Yeah, I, I definitely got a couple of emails and a couple like calls from people, um, but you know nothing solid. Like I think I probably had one or two general meetings. Um, but it's not just going to happen, you know, over mm. one call or something. You just have to keep working. This is what also I realized, that you're, not, you're never going to make it. You are in the process of making it as you go. Mm. So, yeah. What so, kind of meetings did you have, like, uh, with production companies? Yeah, production companies, agents, mm. um, even, like, other, like, people that wanted to work with me because they, they'd see any camp, they'd be like, oh, you know, I'd like to work with that guy at some point, you know. Were the people that um, reached out, the people that wanted to work, was, was that DPs, was that producers, this kind of... Yeah, yeah, it was a bit of everything. Hmm. Um, but, but yeah, it's also, I mean, there's still people that are like seeing it today, even though it's been like two years now, and they're like, you know, interested in talking and stuff. That's the good thing too, of like, you know, having the film on a good platform like that. Okay, so then... Um... So yeah, things go very well with Anacam mm. on these like uh, on these websites, and then COVID hits, and then you decide to do the directing commercials course at the NFTS. 
mm-hmm. and I think you spoke a bit about that in our previous conversation. But like, I suppose what, yeah, what what made you make that decision, and did you make that decision over the the COVID period? Um, yeah, um, I think like one year after one year after Annie Camp was released, I was back into editing, like freelance editing, and directing like music videos left like every now and then. Um, but I think I realized that I was getting too old to make music videos um, because there was definitely an ageism thing, you know, with music videos. Like, you have to be, you know, the new hot thing to make a music video for, like, pop artists because uh, you have to have, like, a, an almost, like, a, a symbiotic... Like, almost like a symbiotic... Uh, knowledge of like what's what's the zeitgeist at that moment Mm -hmm. so that what you make will be like so relevant and i feel like you know as you get old you you know you lose touch with that so i realized that oh maybe commercials will be you know uh interesting for me to do because i have that background graphic design so i'm used to work you know from a brief and try to like come up with creative and stuff and I was also thinking about uh, not editing anymore because I realized that even though freelance editing is, it gives you a lot of freedom. It's also very time consuming and you end up, you know, like kind of frying your brain. Um, Yeah. Amen to that. So so I wanted to find something that will utilize my skills a bit more and also be more lucrative, uh, which is why I thought about commercials. And then I was, I think I found about the the deadline of the the NFTS course probably two days before or something. So I started writing something like instantaneously. I was like, right. Because, you know, for the application, they ask for, I think they ask for a film you've done. And they also ask for a pitch for a brand you'd make. Like yeah, a, like a 30 second. I think it's pitch a 30 second uh, ad. Yeah, pitch a 30 second ad. And it was like a one page or something. Mm. Um, and I remember thinking, yeah, okay, I'm not going to pitch something for Nike or something for Adidas or something for Coca-Cola because everyone's going to do that. Uh, so I'm going to pitch something really quirky. I'm going to pitch for Lego. <laughs> nice. Um, Can you tell us what the pitch was? What your idea was? <laughs> yeah, the, the pitch was, like, I was reading, I was researching about Lego a bit, and apparently there was, like, a um, resurgence of people, like, adults, millennials, and older uh, buying Lego sets and building them over COVID because, you know, they were, like, ang- anxious and stuff, so it was some kind of meditation. Uh, and I found that pretty interesting that, you know, maybe a decade ago, you would never see that. Like, you would associate Lego with kids and, you know, with that that kind of, like, uh, target. So I thought, oh, there's probably an ad that you can make, you know, an, an ad that redefines Lego. Um, so, so the idea was to have very slick, almost like fashion shooty kind of shots pushing in into these models and they look like extra glamorous and stuff. And you think this is going to be an ad for, you know, like a, a fashion brand or like a perfume or something. But then you have a voiceover where they're talking about them building their Lego sets and stuff and doing really childish, childish sounds like, <laughs> <laughs> And I thought that was a good juxtaposition. Um, and yeah, like, I remember Andrew, uh, one of the tutors, was like, yeah, that's, that's an amazing idea. 
So that's why you're coming to the course. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So Alex tends to do uh, comedic, somehow, uh, comedic commercials, whereas if you watch his films, they're not very comedic, which is an interesting, I find, quite an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. That yeah. That's, uh, that's true. Um, I mean, I, th I think I've heard that the funniest people are the person that are the most messed up or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and then, so if we continue on this, this thing, so you've now, obviously then we, we you know, going through that, uh, that course, I guess the question I was going to ask is then maybe where, where are you now? Are you gonna, yeah. 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 I guess. So, uh, so you then so obviously completed the directing commercials course. Um, and like, what are you working on now? I know you, you're writing something. Are you working on your next short film? Um, so the producer of Anikam, Visal, he, he's working right now on a, on a feature film, on a whodunit. And uh, he sent me the treatment today of uh, what he wants from it because he, he would like us to co-write it together. So I think I'm going to work on that for a bit. Co-direct it as well? Um, I'm not sure I will direct it. Well, I mean, I would like to, but I don't know if I have the stamina to direct a foreign film, like a feature foreign film. Hmm. Um, so there's that. And also... Sorry, um, I might have missed this, but what, what, uh, in what country would it be made? Oh, it will be in Cambodia. It'll be in Cambodia, okay. So it will be all in Cambodian, mm, okay. which is a challenge itself. Um, and uh, and it also it will, it will all be in the countryside, kind of the same setting as Anikam, right. and like uh, four days of shooting in the countryside in Cambodia was all already pretty hard. Um, mm. So I cannot imagine you know twenty five days of that. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Um, so there's that, and I'll, I'm also writing a short right now that is going to be based on my relationship with my cousins. Because I think there's like something there. Uh, and what what kind of stage are you at with that? Is that more research and and kind of thinking about it, or um, I'm outlining it right now. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm doing this, and I'm also in talks with production companies uh, to possibly getting signed because after graduating from NFTS, we've all had three to four commercials that we could show to companies uh, as a proof that we could actually make commercials. Uh, so that was pretty useful. Yeah. Alex's commercials are fabulous. Uh, oh, we'll also you. link those in the <laughs> show notes. Yeah, really great. My personal favorite is the Share Creams one. Uh, everyone loved that one. It, it's, it's cool because the school didn't want to sh didn't want to show at first. They say that oh, you just you have one commercial. It's fine. You know, we can just show that at the the showcase. And and I was really like nah, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it work. Even though I only have seven days, we're gonna do edit, grade, sound mix, music in one in in like those like seven days. <laughs> and it and it and it worked. And yeah, everyone really really liked that one. Uh, which it got I a really... big, big laugh. It is very yeah. funny. It, I've watched it many a time. It's very, very funny. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was going to say, like, what, what's the um, so the goal is to make feature films, or yeah, like... the goal is definitely to make feature films and maybe also TV TV shows. Um, as a writer, as, as well, as a director for now, because mm -hmm. I'm not that comfortable um, like writing 
like that much. Like I'm, I'm comfortable writing about personal things, you know, but I'm not sure I'm like at that stage where I can, you know, write about anything, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, I was going to ask about, you've mentioned a few times, um, I don't know if it's the right time to go into it, but anyway, um, you've you've mentioned a few times genre, mm -hmm. and when we've talked, you keep talking about genre as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was wondering, are you consciously writing, and your short films in the past, have you consciously written for them to be in a genre? So Anna Cam, was that consciously written to be, I would say it's a thriller, Mm -hmm. um, and then did you write um, a monster as a particular genre and did you write a minotaur as well yeah, and thought, what do you think is the best the advantage thought, of that um, sorry to interrupt no, no, you no, 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 go for it, go for it. Question. Um, I thought a monster was a psychological horror and then Will said it was a drama and we, we had argued an argument about it. <laughs> oh, interesting so you can be the one that tells us <laughs> I mean yeah uh, I agree it is uh, well to me it was uh, a drama thriller damn it Oh uh, <laughs> yes, right but, again. <laughs> but it does make sense that you know you can also call it a, a psychological thriller, um, really. Not, not a horror. Not, not sure about psychological horror though. Okay. Um, so wait, uh, is this? Uh, we'll Yarn, edit this bit was out. Yarn wrong? <laughs> we'll Yarn wrong? I think Yarn's wrong. <laughs> um, wait, what? What else? So genre and like why oh. why write for genre or do, is that something that you okay. naturally yeah. find yourself doing is writing for a genre? Yeah, um, I was having like that internal struggle, you know, <clears throat> uh, a couple of years ago while writing a monster because I I realized that I, I was not the kind of director that would be just happy having a drama about two people sitting down next to each other and talking. Like, because of, like, me growing up watching horror, sci-fi, anime, and lots of, basically, genre, genre films, like, on VHS and stuff, um, I think I still need to see some kind of thrill in the films I make. So I need to see a chase. I need to see something that, you know, gets your blood pumping, basically. Mm -hmm. So at first, it was not really, I think, uh, like, a conscious decision to do genre. It's just that... I will write something that I want to see or I want to make. And for some reason, it's a chase or it's someone getting killed. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I think we should ask that question we discussed um, about like, so in, in a monster, there's a, there's a, a scene that's pretty, that must've been pretty tough to, to have di directed, which was like, I think the lead character is like, you know, there's a there's a prospect of a of a rape potentially oh, yeah. happening yeah. and we're not we're not sure as an audience um i mean you talked a little bit about it but did it take a lot of like psyching yourself up to tackle that kind of subject matter because that is there's a tricky thing to tonally get right mm -hmm, um mm -hmm, so yeah how did you approach it and how did you direct it um we had rehearsals for this mm -hmm. scene i think it was the scene we had the we had the most rehearsal time for with Lauren and Mark, uh, because I wanted her to feel safe, and I wanted them to rehearse the action they were gonna go through so that it never feels like we're going they're going out of line or something. Um, and we worked out together like the exact like the exact thing he was gonna do, the exact thing she was going to do. Um, and also they're both amazing actors, you know, so it was pretty easy to, it was easier than you think to do that scene. Mm -hmm. But also, yeah, like, I, I hate, I hate 
rape scenes in films. It's something that, you know, it's seared in your brain. And, yeah. then, and then you cannot, you know, unsee them. Like, I remember watching Irreversible. Yeah, man, that's a brutal. And I, I hate Gaspar Noé for, for that film, you know. Yeah. But I'm, also... I'm going to rush to see another one of his movies after yeah, that, actually. But, yeah, and I also, you know, I, I love David Fincher, but, like, <sighs> the girl with, with the dragon tattoo, the rape scene is, is like, I, I don't want to ever see or hear that ever again. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to approach that scene, you know, in a, you know, subtle way. I didn't want to sensationalize it, and and I didn't want to utilize a female body as you know, like a, a reason like to make drama or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, sorry, I just want to unpack that a little bit. Um, so you're approaching the scene. So you've written the scene, obviously, as this, you know, potentially it's a rape, you know, mm-hmm. potential rape scene. How, when you're talking to the actress about that. Are you then talking to her about how she would feel safe doing that on the set mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the lead actor? Yeah. Okay. Um, because Mark, uh, Mark was super experienced with uh, the method. He was very good at channeling that. And Lauren was like amazing. Uh, I actually found her through an NFT short from oh. 2011 or something. Um they were very good at talking and in and in just making it feel real without feeling unsafe for them to do, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yeah, that's just like shows that you should really, really, really cast well. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, sorry, to, uh, yeah, did yeah. you, um, did you feel nervous about like, was there a part of you that was scared about doing this? doing this film because of that what it entailed oh yeah yeah i mean i think at that time uh i was definitely a lot into darker things like when it came to film and stuff um so i felt like i had the right uh i had the right mood board in my brain to make it basically um, but it was definitely yeah challenging to think about oh this is about a burn victim and oh you know he cheated on his wife and oh there's an escort in that mm. in that in that film and oh he might rape her okay mm-hmm. you know so yeah so so the sex scene in in a monster you choreographed and you worked that out really meticulously with the actors making mm-hmm. them feel mm-hmm. safe you there's a scene in I'm not going to ruin it for everyone there's a scene in Anacam. Uh, an action, a fight scene, basically, mm-hmm, in Anacam. Mm-hmm. Was your process towards that similar to how you uh, you approached this uh, the scene in a monster? Uh, because oh, it's, it's so hard to make oh, that yeah. stuff look real, and then obviously you've got to keep the actors safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so I just want to ask one more question on top of that. Did you learn anything from the experience on a monster doing that scene oh, that yeah. you brought into this scene in Anacam? Just as context, the scene is just a fight scene, in mm-hmm, Anakam, mm-hmm. I just yep. guess for the listener. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, like I think with a monster in the rehearsals, I realized how much you have to choreograph and plan action, and especially anything that you know is, that does that is uh, in, involving the body. Um, and uh, the fighting is pretty intense in in Anakam, even though it's pretty short. There's a lot of, you know, strangles and a lot of holes and a lot of uh, being hit with a rock. Uh, 
Spoiler. So, yeah. so so we did rehearse that a lot too. Uh, we actually were like spending a whole afternoon with uh, the actors, trying to trying to find the right position, the right action, and the right also the right sequence that will lead to Sam finding a rock, basically. Mm. So that took that took a while because um, also at that time I did a lot of Krav Maga, so. I was coming to, with a lot of different, a lot of different like you know position and situation and stuff, and because um, we wanted to be like okay that guy the policeman definitely ha is trained so you know he'll be able to choke someone and stuff it will not feel like he doesn't know what he's doing, um, so yeah that took a, that took a while, uh, but we also rehearsed the um, when he's spearing him. You know, mm -hmm. when like the policeman is like tracking Narit and then when Sam is just like jumping in from the side. Yeah. That was also rehearsed because we wanted them to well it's really it's really hard to make that feel real because like there's no way that Sam could actually spare uh the policeman because he's way bigger than him. So we we had to make the his reaction feel as real as possible. Mm. So yeah, that took that took a while too, and the the actors were very very tired, uh, because that was like one of the last scenes we shot on the fourth day. Really? Yeah. Okay. And you and you strictly like storyboard that because it was an action sequence. Um, I normally storyboard everything, mm -hmm. but uh, for Anicam, uh, we shot listed everything, and and then had a pretty like open approach like we would like look at look at our shot list go to go to the location and for like for like an hour or so we point all the different shots we need basically right just to everyone that's it okay um cool and then yeah maybe this is kind of kind of a good segue to the um previous point um i was going to bring up so like you know you mentioned Stephen Stephen Katz's book shot by shot in mm -hmm. in your talk and you said that had a big impact on you is that sort of how you go about preparing for um a film then like so uh, i remember in the book it's quite detailed it's is you know, i think he says that he like he would recommend a director to write out very specifically what they plan to do with a shot and then um and then storyboard it is that something similar to your process like how do you, how is how do you do it um I would I would take the um, the scene from the script and then write the beats and then uh do a do a couple of passes on, on the storyboarding just to get it out of my system. So like I would just draw a storyboard at first and then it will be the most obvious thing and then try to refine it and refine it and refine it until like I have something I'm very happy with and then I would like write it down as a short list basically. Hmm. That's what I would do. Um, How closely do you stick to the shot list on the day of shooting? Um, I mean, I try to, I try to be as you know as faithful to the shot list as I can. Um, but if if the DP or if someone points out that we can get something better, like in a close up or in a medium or something, I will definitely you know look into that because we've done that a couple of times. Um, and I think it's good to have a short list just so you can forget it sometimes mm. uh, because you never know what's going to happen on the day 
Mm. Yeah. And then do you um, do you collaborate with the DP in, in pre-production much in terms of like the actual shot selection or are you usually like, this is what I was thinking? Um, I used to, yeah, I, I used to be very heavy handed in the storyboarding and the shot list and basically saying exactly what I wanted. Um, but as I've directed more now, uh, I'm really more collaborative. Like I have a, an initial storyboard shot list and then I talk with the DP and we try to find, you know, better ways to basically express the scene and what the beats are and what I want to say, basically. So just, just unpacking that a little bit. Um, so on your shorts, you, so for working with your DOP, you'd have a storyboard and a shot list that you'd then present to them. And then how would that work in terms of collaborating with them? Would you say, you know, with this shot or this sequence here, this is what I'm trying to get across. And then they'll be like, what if we did this? What if we did that? And this is before the actual day of shooting as well, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, would, I would run through the story with them. I would run through the script and tell them I like, you know, this medium shot to be that way because I think we are with this character at this in this scene and stuff. And I don't want you know, the, the white to be low angle because I wanted to make the characters feel very tall and stuff like that. And then sometimes they will be like, yeah, but it doesn't work with a 25 mil, you know. Mm. Like technically they can correct me a lot, but also I think it's good to talk with someone else about, you know, your scenes, uh, especially a DP, because they will, they will say, yeah, no, like you don't have to do like a two shot or something. You can all do it in like, you know, a dirty or you can do it in another way. And it's good to, I think it's good to workshop your ideas and like say out loud to people, say, say out loud to people. So because then it just makes it better, mm -hmm. uh, like rather than just keep keeping everything in your head. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, you've got what, you've got another question, haven't you? Yeah, I didn't know if you had another question. Uh, no, no, you jump in. Um, okay, we've only, uh, I'd say we've only got a couple, a couple questions left. Um, my big question, I think, would be um, what is the most important tool that you think a filmmaker has? I mean, you talked a lot earlier about Denis Villeneuve and the persistence of all of that. So I think more generally, like, what does it kind of take to to make these short films and be become a filmmaker? Mm. I mean, it depends on the kind of director you are, I guess. Some people just follow um, an intuition and they just follow it, you know, until the end. Some people are more deliberate. Some people, you know, some people are going to be like, oh, I want, you know, my film to say that, and they're going to work that way. It depends on the kind of director you are. And right now, I feel like I'm the latter. The latter? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I need... Well, I'm, I'm a bit of a combination, basically. Like, I write a lot without thinking too much, and then I read again what I'm doing, and then, like... I'm able to see patterns and see maybe a theme or something. And then, you know, I embellish and polish it and, you know, make it work towards that theme that I think, you know, is going to represent, you know. It's mm, very interesting. Mm, cool. Okay. All right. Well, I think it's a good time to perhaps ask um, uh, a new segment on Short Films Big Questions. New segment! Um, which is, what is your favorite short film or have you watched a short film recently that's just blown your mind? Mm. let me think I can actually not point any well actually well 
there's a lot. But do you mean my favorite, like of all time? I think that's Just a good that. place yeah, to start. Yeah. That. I think my favorite short film of all time is still Keeping Up with the Jonases by Michael Pierce. I've never seen that. Oh, I haven't seen that. That was that aesthetical, wasn't it? But before before he made Beast. It was before he made Beast. It was at the BAFTA Guru. Uh, it was at the BAFTA Guru. Was it, it was at BAFTA Guru 2014 or 2015. Yeah, because I was at that as well. It wasn't. Ha- it wasn't Hammersmith that one. Oh no no oh so 2001 so I wouldn't have been at that one. Yeah, because he did the Q and A. He did the Q and A. Wayne other Beast. Guru, didn't he? But before that, like uh, there was like a showcase of um, British short films. And keeping keeping up with the Joneses was one of them, and and I think when I saw that film, I was like, oh my god, like this is this is what I want to do, like because like keep, keeping up with the Joneses is a perfect blend of drama and thriller, mm-hmm. um, and I was thinking, okay, this is a blueprint for like you know what I want to do. Ah, awesome! Keeping up with the Joneses, I'll add it to the list. Like yeah, yeah, lovely. Well. That concludes it, I think. Thank you so much, Alex. It's been amazing. Yeah, thank you, man. It's it's really, like, great to hear, like, you know, how your honest thoughts on the whole thing. Like, you can tell, like, you know, Mm. you're not um, just being very honest with what you think and how you feel about short filmmaking and your own experience with it. So really Uh, appreciate that. uh, Oh, thank you. I mean, I I think, like, uh, time also makes you more humble Mm. (laughs) and more accepting of things. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, so... I realized that, yeah, like, uh, I know what I want, basically, and I know how, like, how much I have to work for it, and I know it's going to take a long time, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Nice one. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, I'm assuming, if I press that, it'll stop recording. <laughs> <laughs>